Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. Hi, Liz. Hello, host, Nathan Ross. (laughs) How are you, co-host Liz Luce? I'm very co-hosty today. (laughs) Awesome. So today we are talking about our rapid reunification program at Foster Adopt Connect. And we are here with our founder, CEO, and creator of the rapid reunification program, and our mother, Lori Ross. Hello, Lori. Hi, kids. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing fine. And we are here with a professional therapist, Danielle Cool. Hello, Danielle. Hello. How are you? Doing great. Awesome. And so you two are pros. You don't need a whole lot of lead in. What is this rapid reunification program? What is the history, the purpose? So um, I'll start with that. Kind of uh, like everything else that we do at Foster Adopt Connect, we approach child welfare systemic problems in a, a kind of a different way. We look at it from the perspective of the child or the family and we try to come up with uh, some kind of a unique approach that cr- that makes the current system work better in terms of outcomes for uh, the kids and the families. And so, w- when we were thinking about the issue of children coming into care, and the, and it still is a problem. It's a it's been a problem uh, for the last seven or eight years, and it continues to be a problem. Originally, we thought that the number of kids coming into care was increasing, just really related to the economic downturn. Now we have the highest number of children who've ever been in care in Kansas and in Missouri. And so as I was working in the system, um, you know, I was looking at the issue of kids coming into care and what we could do differently to address those issues so kids didn't need to remain necessarily in care. And so we, um, we started talking about if we could do something to really capitalize on the, uh, the, uh, low-hanging fruit, and and that's a crass term, but basically families for which it was the first time that their children have come to the attention of the children's division or the first time that they're getting uh, a hotline call, they're getting referred into care. And for those families who don't have um, issues presenting problems that are so serious that they um, uh, couldn't be remedied if somebody devoted some real intensive time and focus on helping those issues get remedied because the traditional system brings kids into care for their own safety, places them somewhere in a foster home or, or a shelter or a facility. And, um, and it kind of takes its time to get around to figuring out whether the issues that brought the kids into care are the only issues that exist in the family. And what are some services that might help that family get better? And before you know it, those kids have been in care for two years mm-hmm. and parents who were very motivated in the week or two following their child coming into care have kind of gotten used to their kids not being present in their home and they have um, lost some of that desire to mm-hmm. work really hard to fix uh, issues that they they know they have um, as families. They Attorneys get involved and they start talking about 
what they're going to agree they did or didn't do in the legal record, and we get lost in the weeds as opposed to focusing on what the real issues are that families face. So um, I, I was working with some of the colleagues that I work with at Foster Adopt Connect, and we came up with an idea that if we were able to bring kids into a safe environment um, when they were first coming into care and devote immediate focused attention on working with those parents, we might actually be able to get kids back home much more quickly than the traditional foster care system does. Mm-hmm. So we came up with a plan to try to open up a shelter program where kids could come in, they could stay with their siblings rather than face the possibility of getting split up into separate foster homes, where we could have the door open to invite parents and families to come in and see their kids on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So that would reduce the trauma of the loss of those parents to the kids, where we could probably keep kids going to their original schools so they don't have to lose their friends and their teachers and those natural supports they've had in their lives. And where we could devote one staff member at least to working intensively with those parents to anticipate what are those issues that Mm -hmm. we're going to have to see as a system getting better before we can safely send kids home. And we thought about a time frame for that. And we thought, well, 30 days might be too short. um, But 60 days, you might be able to get some real stuff accomplished in 60 days of concentrated effort. And and basically, we base this on sort of a natural crisis response philosophy. Okay. You think about crises that occur in families with kids. If mm-hmm. if your child is uh, fought, is at school on the playground, they fall off the jungle gym and they break their leg. Mm-hmm. Um, you get that call. The school has sent that child by ambulance to the emer- emergency room. You're calling everybody in your family you know on your way to the emergency room to meet your child. And and you get to the emergency room and they say, we have to transfer your child to Children's Mercy and they're going to have to have a pin put in their leg. And so you and your partner, or your spouse are at the emergency room with your child and your extended family members come to the hospital or they respond to your house to get your other kids off the bus mm-hmm. or they're making meals or they're making plans for how to help your life not fall apart while you respond to this crisis with this child. And and the thought occurred to us that every family, no matter how dysfunctional, no matter what issues there are that exist in that family, mm-hmm. has the same kind of crisis response. So if a family is struggling with an issue like, like substance use or they're um, finding them, themselves homeless or they've distanced themselves in some way from their natural supports because they're living in a way that is going to maybe result in uh, their kids being at risk for abuse or neglect, when those kids come into care, that's almost the same kind of a crisis as a child who falls and breaks their leg on mm-hmm. on the playground. All of a sudden, not only is that family in shock and in crisis at the loss of custody of their child, but so is their entire potential network of extended relatives and friends and supporters. Mm-hmm. And if we could capitalize on that crisis to generate the motivation to create real change, Potentially, we could spare kids two years or more in the foster care system and families from having to be uh, at risk of potentially not ever being able to be reunified. I think also it adds that support piece for some families that are disconnected and don't have a lot of natural supports. I think also having it really intense for 60 days allows them to connect to services that they otherwise wouldn't be able to 
So it might be the jump start for them when they're in that shock moment, that kind of that push that gets them to start making some different choices in their life. And I think that's a real important piece right there within that 60 days, the support they can get from the shelter. Right. So we decided to open up a shelter program and just Mm -hmm. give this a try. Mm -hmm. And and we opened a uh, little six-bed shelter in a house that we bought in a neighborhood and Mm -hmm. um, started bringing some kids into the program and working with families. And we had some really remarkable immediate successes in that program and uh, ended up with a waiting list of uh, kids, you know, workers calling on a regular basis, wanting kids to come into the program. And uh, so we talked to our board of directors and decided to invest uh, in building a facility that would accommodate more kids than that. So, um, so we created the shelter program that we have now, the Family Connections Program, and it is uh, primarily exists as a rapid reunification program uh, and has been operating now for uh, a number of years. And we've had, we've had some pretty terrific outcomes. And fortunately, we have great community partners like Danielle who work in the program with us. So rapid reunification, that's very catchy. Um, is that uh, something that you see all over the country? No, um, I, and Danielle can talk about her experience in other facilities in the Kansas City area. There are certainly children's shelters in other parts of uh, the metro area and in, in the country, but I don't know of any that have a focused rapid reunification program. So this is a really unique um, experiment that we've created and um, feel like it's a program model that uh, that is showing some pretty positive results. So before we uh, have to go to break, Danielle, please talk to us about what is your experience been with other programs like this? Or so what I what I see that's unique and what I really like about the program that drew me into wanting to be involved and provide my services there is that the parents are involved from the get go and can be there basically during all waking hours that their job or if they're not at court appointments that they can be at the shelter with the kids and it takes away a layer of trauma. These kids are in shock when they come into care, Mm -hmm. even when things have not been ideal at home and people from the outside may look at it as, Oh, well they should be grateful that they've been removed from that situation. Mm -hmm. We all know from working and being around these kids enough that it's different and it's strange and that's a hardship and we're taking everything away from them. Mm -hmm. But then them having their parents there at night to be the person to read them a story, to assist with their bathing, to share meals with them, to go over homework. They don't have that period where those parents haven't been doing parenting parent moments. And I don't know. I've never worked in another facility where they've had that much interaction with the families. Do you think that helps also with the parents not feeling the hopelessness of not being able to do that for their child? Absolutely. I think it keeps the connection strong because even if you talk about 60 days, um, that's a long time to go without really having a lot of interactions. And you also have, even though the system is designed and they're supposed to have all these things come in, they don't it takes time to set those things up and to set the transportation up, to set the people up to supervise. And now it's just here where the parents go to one place. And so when we come back for break, I want to get into more of what are our parents doing why they have, while they have this 60 days. So more when we return on Fostering Hope.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with Liz Luce, my co-host. Hi, Liz. Hello. We've been talking with Lori Ross and Danielle Cool about our rapid reunification program at Foster Adopt Connect. And so before break, we got into the history. And I know, um, Liz, you had a question right as we were going to break um, for I Danielle. I, I know that this is, you know, this is such a, a cool program. It's it's new and it's, in, I mean, it's innovative. And I imagine that there are uh, certain criteria for uh, youth and families that we accept into the program or you know, things that are, are, you know, a deal breaker that they cannot be in the program. So what do those look like? So for the deal breakers, we're looking primarily at sexual abuse where that has been prevalent in the home. That's something that within 60 days, it's pretty unrealistic to get it solved and to get where people can feel safe and the kids can feel safe returning home. Another is if it's been a recurrent problem and this is not their first time entering into the system, but it's been the same problem and you've seen it a couple times over. Maybe they've gone, they've been in foster care, they went home and now Mm -hmm. they're back in care for the same reason. Probably it's going to take a little bit more than 60 days in most circumstances. And then the other would be extreme physical abuse Mm -hmm. um, where the physical safety, I think a big criteria also for success is are the parents willing to take responsibility for their actions and to do work on their own life to help remedy what caused the kids to come into care in the first place. So in your experience, what are the most common um, reasons for removal that you've seen for the rapid reunification program? Um, Homelessness has been a big one since I've been involved. And that makes me, because I see where parents have even been getting their kids to school every day. It even almost makes me tear up, but they were living in the car, but they made sure their kids got to school. They had breakfast in the morning at school. They could have lunch at school. Then the parents only had one meal. Um, So that has been a reason that has caused kids to come into care. And that is inappropriate discipline. Um, where it's been almost generational of, well, it's okay to whoop your child and I'm not doing anything wrong and that's what was done with me and I'm perfectly okay and having to learn about the impact of that and the trauma that that can create from the children and education. A lot of times, too, I see where the parents, just the removal of the kids to know this is, you you cross the line, mm-hmm. can be enough to jumpstart them into wanting to make positive change in their life. So what does this look like for the children as they're entering the rapid reunification shelter? Um, You know, what I see them at a point where they um, come in, but the big significant thing is they get to remain together. Um, and I did forget to mention, too, another issue where the parents have drug use. Mm. Um, so the kids only know their life with their family. And what I saw was happening so much in the system is the kids would get split up because you can have a large sibling group of six kids. And then they're they're short on foster homes. There's not enough foster homes out there. And the kids are all of a sudden split up all across the metro. Then they're going to different schools. Their schools have transitioned. And now you've created more trauma for these kids. And that's the really difficult thing. So then this way they get to come into the shelter. Their parents get to be involved. Um, They get a system. I think the parents get to see some benefits of they sit down and eat meals together They have chores that they have to do. They are picking up after themselves. 
uh, and the parents are involved in doing those things with them. I know that one of the things when I had I had helped in the shelter when it was a really busy week uh, was that one of the uh, the youth was acting out and wasn't listening to the discipline of the staff. And what was great about it was that the other staff member was able to call the mom and say, hey, you know, he's doing this again. Mom came up and she was able to appropriately discipline with the help and modeling of that staff person. So they still see that parent as the authority figure, and I think that's just amazing. Right. It keeps where there's no gap as far as what the parents are doing, and the parents are still very much seen as the primary parenting figure in their life. Um, I think they also get to maintain that connection of being able to talk and be with them every day. I, I can't emphasize that enough. And so how are we determining the work with the kids? Is there a formula that we're using that all kids who are rapid reunification are getting the same standard or are we tweaking it based on specific cases and the child's needs? You know, everything is individually based. However, what I work as the therapist that comes in is every child is offered therapy and we want to keep the continuing of services and to not have as much disruption in their life. If the children have been seeing an outside therapist and that outside therapist is willing to come up and see them at the shelter and the shelter keeps its doors open when we'll allow those therapists to do that, then I don't have any therapeutic meetings with those kids because they can maintain that connection. They don't need another stranger, another person in their life. Let's maintain those connections for those kids. Um, For the other kids, it can vary um, that come in and that do need therapy. For some kids, it's just dealing with the fact that they've been removed. Mm -hmm. That's been the main trauma, and it's learning how to give them the tools to verbalize instead of act out their emotions, um, sometimes which can look really negative. Uh, Other times it can look hyper. Um, It can cause disruption for school. It can cause an increase in behaviors. And to be able for them to understand the story, we work a lot on understanding your story and you being able to use the right feeling words to express what you're experiencing here. Um, And other kids, it's long-term Maybe you need to have the idea of some longer-term therapy while mm-hmm. you're there. Okay. So we're starting to get into some of those that emotional standpoint of figuring out you know, how to verbalize, as mm-hmm. you were saying. So, Lori, while we're working with the kids on you know, addressing being in care, how are we starting to address the, the family dynamic from the parent standpoint? So um, parents opt into this program. It's not something that's thrust upon them. It's a, an option that's presented to them and one that they select into. So so we know that when parents come in, they have demonstrated that they have an interest in participating in this program with, with the possibility that they could get their kids back much more quickly than, than some other uh, placement might allow. Mm-hmm. So we start with the parents with some assessment tools. Um, there's a scale called the North Carolina uh, readiness for reunification school that uh, is given to parents and a a parenting inventory. And those tools point us in some directions with regard to um, parenting attitudes, what parents need to learn. We also look at what brought the kids into care and we can anticipate based on our experience, what are the issues that the parents are going to need to resolve. Some of them are obvious, like for example, homelessness, Danielle just talked about. If, if we're looking at a family that's been living in a car uh, yeah. One of the first things we need to do is get them into a safe, stable, and appropriate 
home so their kids have a, a home to go home to. Right. Um, some things are a little harder and take more time, like substance abuse. That's a situation where we can get started. We can do an intake assessment. We can get them started in substance treatment. We can get them clean. But we know that substance abuse treatment is something that is an extensive, long process, probably is maintained and continued for uh, a much longer period of time than, than we're going to be involved with the family. Okay. And so I, I know we have to go to break here soon, but um, when we come back, I do want to kind of talk a little bit about how are we providing those resources? Are we connecting them just to say, hey, these are the drug rehab places or, you know, what does that kind of look like? Um, so because I know it's important for our families to be able to get some of that guidance because often they don't know what's happening. So when we return, we want to pick up with that and then kind of talk about how our families recognizing when it's time to move back home or if we need to make an adjustment. So um, when we return, we'll continue with that on Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. Before break, we were talking with Lori Ross and Daniel Cool about our rapid reunification program, and we talked about what is happening on a therapeutic side and on the shelter side for our kids, and we started to get into the conversation about what is happening with our parents in these 60 days. And so, Lori, if you could just um, talk to us about what does that look like? You mentioned some of the assessments and things. Are we directing our families to resources? Um, what So what does that look like? So... So we decided early on that what we wanted to do was uh, be a different voice for families than the ones that they tr- traditionally hear in the system. Um, in a typical child welfare situation, a child is assigned or a, a family is assigned to a caseworker whose job it is to make sure the kids are okay and also to work with and encourage the family towards what they need to do for reunification. But those caseload sizes are very large. Mm-hmm. So workers in our children's division and the other child uh, placing agencies that do the work in um, in, in Kansas City uh, have big caseloads, and they don't have a lot of individualized time to spend with kids and families. They have some other resources they can apply, like they can send a parent aid in to provide some services. But mm-hmm. in general, they're limited in terms of what they have. So we decided we wanted to put someone in place who would work specifically with the parents whose mm-hmm. children are part of this program to do things a little differently. And we had kind of a philosophy that is really based in our very real ground up kind of uh, theory of doing work with kids and families, which is that if we could be honest with families and communicate effectively with families and address the elephant in the room a little bit more head on, we might make a little more progress a little more quickly. So, um, so we hired a family liaison whose job it is to meet with that family and engage with them within the first 24 hours that their child is in the shelter. Okay. And that person works individually with the parents of the children in the program. So their caseload is typically pretty small. Um, there, there may be two or three different sibling groups of children who are involved in this program at any one time, but that's a, that's a caseload of three families as opposed to maybe 25 or 30 or 35 families that you're working with. So you still have. And that's a huge difference, I think, for families because then they can make that connection with one person that's not spending just some time on the phone or they're doing a visit or I see mm-hmm. them at court. 
but I can develop a relationship with this person and I can kind of get the connection that these people really do want to help. They do are here for me. They are here for my family. We're working on one collective goal other than it's just written on paper that reunification is the goal <laughs> that we're all trying to achieve. But I'll see you in two weeks in court. Right. So, so our liaison interacts with the family and creates a list of specific a list of specific goals that they uh, address, and it is dependent on what the family situation is. So it may be that the family is um, needing to secure employment. It may be that the family is needing to secure a place to live. It may be that the family uh, needs to have ongoing resources for substance abuse treatment, or there was some domestic violence that came out in the investigation process that needs to be addressed, or um, or their kids may have mental health issues that haven't been well addressed, or the kids may have behavioral issues that have caused them not to attend school as frequently as they need to. Whatever the case may be, a plan mm-hmm. is developed with the input of the family and anticipating what the the child welfare system and the court is going to want to see so that child can safely go back home. And we then have steps that must be taken to get that family to where they need to be. So our liaison is working individually with those parents to, um, to uh, if, if the issue is we need to get a job, our liaison is working with that parent to identify what their skills are, what kind of employment they could do, what hours they might be available to work, um, and then to uh, help them to uh, get out and put in applications. Oftentimes, we hear from our staff that transportation is a huge barrier, and our metro area is well known for not having a lot of great public transportation options, especially when you get out into any suburb whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, busing is very difficult. It's very hard to get folks where they need to be. And so transportation for our families can be a, a major barrier to success economically, um, to, to housing. And so they'll take them to uh, apply for jobs, make sure they're able to get to job interviews. They'll work with them to identify if they have skills or documents that they need. If they, if they don't have their social security card anymore because it got uh, repossessed with the car that got abandoned on mm. the side of the highway. Well, I know there was one family that they helped assist that they had been at the dad had been a veteran and they helped them then figure out he had different housing options for them. So he was able, they were able to get housing and then that remedied and the kids went home in less than 60 days once they found stable housing and were able to be connected. I remember a situation where they actually did a mock interview. This gentleman had never really done a job interview before and the liaison sat down like they were giving them the interview and made sure they had the outfit that that interviewees should wear, you know, and it was it was so amazing that they let them practice that and practice that. So it was a skill they didn't have before, but now they have that. So there's kind of an assumption, I think, in the general public that um, parents of kids who are in foster care um, are somehow deficient or bad people. And the reality is that what we find when we work with these parents is that very often they've had life experiences that are similar to the kids that are in care, that yeah. they have not had um, really effective parenting themselves when they were kids, that they haven't seen a lot of examples of success in their lives. And so those basic things that maybe you learn in a healthy, normal family, the parents of our kids haven't necessarily learned those things. So sometimes it's that basic work, like mm-hmm. going over um, how you actually fill out an application 
that um, and practicing an interview that helps mm-hmm. a parent to make that next step to get that next job. Sometimes it's balancing resources to try to figure out how um, how we're going to as a family effectively function if if uh, dad is working the night shift. What shift should mom pick up in order, and what do we do about supervision of the kids in between? So we're safety planning all along, looking mm-hmm. at what needs to be in place for this this family to effectively be able to live together. And you're also looking at, with transportation being a huge issue, where geographically should you be looking if you're looking for a job that you mm. can do this, where this doesn't create more of a child care um, type issue for the kid. I mean, it's just multifaceted what the pieces that the family liaison worker does. So they work on they work on several domains of functioning, and and they uh, make progress in several domains of functioning. They certainly do parenting skill building. They do parent training. Um, that happens not only in the individual setting, but also in the shelter itself, um, which is kind of one of those unique aspects. If if you have a, a child in a program and and the child is there without parents being able to access, we mm-hmm. may discover a good way to help a child to manage their own frustration. If the parent is able to observe that and learn those skills, it's it's just that much better for that mm-hmm. kid and that family. You do hear the families talk generationally. Well, this is the way that I was right. raised, and nothing right. was wrong with that. So I'm just doing what was done to me. And so all of a sudden, they had no idea that, timeouts, so to speak, or pulling the kids in close to them when the kids are having behavior disruption. They don't they see it as that's rewarding their behavior instead of regulating the child. So when they see the shelter staff do that, they can see that modeling and then they can see the benefits of it firsthand, how it works specifically with their child, not just what's told to them through a book or a video. They can see it actually with their own child, and I think that's huge for parents. And, and you were saying both of what you both have been talking about um, sounds like conflict resolution. And so uh, how often is it that with our families that this is the first experience they're even getting with conflict resolution skills? Right. I mean, often, often this is the first experience. Um, they're set up for some level of success um, in this program because they learn that we're partnering with them. It doesn't feel adversarial to them. So we're able to address things in kind of a different way and a different approach. Another aspect to the program is that we really try hard to match those families with community resources that will continue on after they're done with our program. Okay. We're designed to be a very short-term intervention in a family. So I think Danielle talked about some of the kids who maybe have some mental health issues have come in with community therapists that we maintain. We try to keep the kids in their original schools. Our mm-hmm. ultimate goal with these kids and these parents is to connect them to resources that will carry over because we know that when you're shifting a family's direction, when you're changing their trajectory, that's something that's going to be an ongoing process. It's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're teaching a family for the first time how to budget and effectively save money in two months, you're not going to save very much. Right. But ultimately, if you've taught them something, it's kind of like that old parable. You you can give a man a fish or you can teach him how to fish. And which one of those things is the thing that's going to have the lasting effect? Absolutely. And for us, our goal is to teach them to fish. We want we want to equip them to be successful long term. I also think one of the great things about having this program with Foster Adopt Connect is the fact that it's um, not one program. It is if you're one program, you have all of the programs. 
Um, so if there is a, a person who hasn't been taught how to drive, you can find someone in that building that will work with them and teach them how to drive. Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> the resources, and it's, it's showing those folks that if they get in trouble in the future, if there are times when they're afraid that maybe they're getting in a situation they could lose their kids again, they weren't thrown barriers like they might have with another agency. They feel comfortable coming back and saying, I need help with this because of how great the liaison and the rapid reunification folks have worked with them. That is a factor that's uh, very valid. Very often the relationships, because this is a relationship-based program that are developed, are such that when our families um, transition out of the program and move back into their lives, if they hit a bump or a barrier, the first call they make is back to to our our staff in order to access you know directions or what to do next. And I think that's so important. Being able to contact an agency, post services, and still you know receive some help, I think is really important. So as we get back, I definitely want to delve more into. What does that look like? What does a post-service look like? And how do we know a family is, again, ready to go home? So more on this when we return on Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. We've been talking today about the Rapid Reunification Program at Foster Adopt Connect. So we have Lori Ross and Danielle Cool with us talking about the experiences of parents prior to coming in to our shelter program, what we're doing with the kids while we're in the program, what we're doing with the parents while we're in the program. And so I would like to just conclude this conversation with how do we know we're ready to move forward? How do we know that we're ready for families to transition back into their family dynamic in the community. I think sometimes it's, you know, pretty easy when it's they've come in for what we label as hard services, like they need homelessness or the parents need to get a job or they need help with budgeting. When those things get rectified, it's it's pretty easy to say, okay, they're ready to go. Um, For some of the families where it's been the inappropriate discipline that has crossed the line, that can be a little bit more difficult and you're doing things along the way the entire time for mm-hmm. um, where you go from maybe the staff modeling what appropriate discipline looks like to the parents taking the steps of the the parents are now modeling or doing appropriate discipline techniques that are different than what they did before to then the staff are transitioning to the staff is consulting with the parents saying, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And so you take it in different steps. Therapeutically, we're looking at things within the kids individually. They get that time to come in an hour a week to really focus on their experience of what's happening, their experience of what happened with their parents. If there's anything that they need to work out with them, that can be done while they're at the shelter too. So we're looking always on a scale of, are they feeling safer about the permanency plan? One thing that we do make sure we do therapeutically is they know why they are at the shelter. Okay, And that's another difference that I should bring up is that a lot of times I would meet kids in private practice where they do not know, well, why are you in care? Right. I I don't know. And then the kids will even say, well, 
you know, my brother and I, we were fighting a lot and we got in trouble for it. And, you know, so now we're in care when in reality, the kids were maybe beat for fighting. And that's why they're in care is because of how the parents disciplined them. And, and, and it has that, nothing to do with their behavior. That reminds me of our very first segment that we did with Maddie sake. And she was talking very much about how when she was in care, she actually thought it was for a completely different reason. She thought she was actually the cause of mm-hmm. being in care. And she didn't realize until she was adopted, the reason was because of her dad's um, inappropriate behavior. So I, I think that that's absolutely something that is uh, common within the child welfare system. No, so I think, you know, we address that. So then we're talking the entire time. So I, I think that's what makes it a process is because you're talking about the reason that they came into care. So now we're talking about the steps that are in place to make it they've been remedied Mm -hmm. or what the parents are going to continue to do um, to no longer. And the parents then can commit to, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, So we look to see that that safety is building and the steps that it takes. And just like everything else, this is not a a, a one person decision. We don't at Foster Adopt Connect make the decision about who gets reunified and who doesn't. Okay. That family is working with a child placing agency and a court. So the, there is a, a team which is overseeing that child's uh, placement into foster care and that family's involvement with the system. And so that team meets on a regular basis. And Mm -hmm. and actually, while the child is in our program, there should be a minimum of two of those meetings, one at the 30-day mark and another one at the 60-day mark, basically, where they're coming back together Mm -hmm. and deciding, are we looking like we're going to be able to achieve reunification rapidly or not? Mm -hmm. And if so, great. And what are the things we need to see in order to make that happen? And if not, what are our other options? So um, so as a program, we are working not only internally and with our with our colleagues and partners uh, that are doing the therapeutic work with our kids and our families, but we're also working with the whole child welfare team. So when they make the decision that kids are able to go home, that is a collective decision made by the entire team, not just based on our recommendation or anything else. Um, and so and so we see that we're successful in doing that about 65 percent of the time. OK. Um, the other outcomes that are potential to happen from our program because we've brought in um, those extended family members are that we may be able to identify. And we do for many, many of our children, some fit and willing and appropriate relative who is able to uh take placement of the child, plan to take placement of the child and go through the process to be approved to take placement of the child so that that child, when they leave our shelter program, transitions into that relative's care as opposed to going to a stranger foster home. But even in those circumstances where kids have to go to stranger foster homes, there is so much benefit to being able to watch that that child and parent interaction. I can remember one case um, that I, I got to observe where there were, I think, five siblings and the parents had a pretty significant uh, drug history. Mm-hmm. And if you saw them, you would be able to tell that they had that kind of a significant drug history. And, the, and there had been some pretty significant neglect. But as our staff was interacting with these parents with their children, we saw some incredible and amazing um, parenting skills. They were attuned to their kids. 
They were paying attention. They were able to deal with their children's issues in beautiful ways. Now, they still had lots to overcome. So we weren't able to get those kids home in that 60 days. But what we were able to do was share our experiences with the foster parent placement provider that was selected and encourage them to develop a relationship with those parents before the children transitioned into that foster home so that it ultimately, when three months from now or five months from now, those parents had made enough progress to get those kids back, Mm -hmm. that foster parent was able then to be a partner to those parents in making that happen. And what a beneficial thing for the children when the parents then have been involved and then they can help them with that. Even though you're not going home, we, we trust these people and we have trust with and we're going to keep on working towards this yeah. and and go there. The kids can be at more peace with going somewhere different than living with their than just reunification. So so what are our stats looking like then for this program? So um, our rapid reunification is, like I said, really pretty successful um, about uh, of the children that are served. About 65 percent um, are successfully reunified. Uh, we see about 30% then of children who are not able to be successfully reunified who then transition into relative or kinship placements from our program and don't have to experience a stay with a stranger foster parent. And only about 5% end up uh, transitioning into uh, relative or into unrelated foster homes. What we also see is that of the kids who are reunified, we do follow up. Um, we, we are not only available to help them, as we talked about earlier, with issues when they come back in, but also uh, we do follow up six months after placement, and 100% of those kids are still safely reunified after placement. At least that was our stat for 2016. Mm-hmm. We're crossing our fingers. We have Absolutely. the same luck this year. What an amazing stat. Yeah. And the really cool thing is that we see an increase in functioning on the part of the parents and the kids, um, an, an average increase of about 11% in functioning. And for us, for kids to improve that level of functioning within that period of time is a pretty remarkable um, scale. So that that really is a pretty cool deal. Wow. Okay. That sounds like an amazing program and one that I know I've been um, pleased to see in my work. And so I just want to thank you both for being here today and talking with us about this program and providing your expertise. You've been listening to Fostering Hope, brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect, a comprehensive regional support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn more about our organization, please visit us on our social media, um, fosteradopt.org. We'll see you next time.